Well, good morning. <clears throat> it's good to be in the company of God's people this morning, and it is always my privilege uh, to open God's word with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Danny Ryan. I serve as one of the pastors here at First Baptist Church. And I, I wish I could say that there's nothing more that I would like to do than to talk more with you at the conclusion of this service today. But for those of you who know me, you know that I really struggle with that. <laughs> you know that if you look up the definition of introvert in the dictionary, you'll likely find a picture of a box turtle closed up tight in his shell with a caption over the top of him that says, I used to think I was an introvert until I met Pastor Danny. In fact, if I'm being totally honest, my preference and my inclination, especially as I get older, is to withdraw and isolate. I actually enjoy being alone, and I am most comfortable keeping the circle small from a social perspective. Now, I know that this is not the best attribute for a pastor, so I try to fight against that inclination that's a big part of why I wanted to start singing with the choir. And I'll admit that when I do put myself out there, it's a challenge for me and it's uncomfortable, but by and large, I do enjoy conversing with people. I do enjoy getting to know them. I just have to get over the trauma of coming out of my shell. If you ever want to know what characteristic best describes who you are, then just ask those who you know best. In fact, in my small circle, in my smallest circle, in my family, you don't even have to ask. My kids are more than happy to tell me what they see. For instance, a couple months ago, I was scheduled to lead the church in congregational prayer. And Pastor Tyrone came over to me before the start of the service just to compare notes, as us elders often do. And he said, so you're going to go right up and pray after the song. I'm not going to introduce you. Got it? Got it. I'm good. No audible, straight to the line of, line of scrimmage, hike the ball. Got it. So Ty head back to his seat, and one of my sons, who had been eavesdropping, leans in and says, wait. Are you leading the whole service? And I said, no, I'm just doing the pastoral prayer. To which came the response, oh, that makes sense. Because that's, that's not a you thing. That's a happy elder thing. <laughs> so in our home, Pastor Tyrone is affectionately referred to as the happy elder because that's a characteristic and an attribute that he often portrays. And I have been labeled, at worst, the grumpy elder, at best, the serious elder. Thank you all for nodding and confirmation. I really didn't need that. Well, today we are concluding our sermon series on the attributes of God in the Psalms. I wonder if there's an attribute that best describes you, who you are. But today we're going to 
look at who God is by the way of the characteristics that he has displayed both in his holy word and through our experience of interacting with him. And as we've gone through this series, it wasn't an exhaustive list of the attributes of God, but it has been so helpful for Pastor Tyrone to show us the goodness of God from Psalm 34. And Pastor Mike, who reminded us of the all-knowing God as described in Psalm 139. And Pastor Tony, who expounded on the all-powerful God that we see in Psalm 115. And God the righteous, who Pastor Josh just magnified for us last week from Psalm 145. And I think what I appreciated most about each sermon was the humble attempt from your pastors to faithfully preach the word, but also to invite us to consider those attributes and to see God for who he is. To simply put it, just to behold our God. And the strategy today is no different. It will be my aim to trust the Holy Spirit of God to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts so that we can see and believe and trust in the holiness of God as described in Psalm 99. So if you will turn there in your Bibles, Psalm 99, or flip there in your, on your electronic device, we'll take a look at this psalm together. Psalm 99. It reads this way. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. By way of introduction, when we consider the concept of holiness, we're generally thinking about the set-apart nature of that which is being described as holy. As good students of the Bible, we understand that there can be an object that is set apart for a divine purpose, and we would consider that object to be holy. Or God can designate for himself a people that is, set to, that is to be set apart for the divine purpose of reflecting his own glory. But when we consider the holiness of God, we see not only his apartness as creator, but we also see as an aspect of holiness the moral perfection of his divine character. 
And in that sense, when we look at holiness as an attribute of God, we should be careful not to separate in our minds this itemized list of the characteristics of God, but rather understand that every attribute is woven together and bound to one another so that they can never be separated. We observe and study the attributes of God in a sermon series like this one by one. And that's okay, that's good, and that's appropriate, for we are finite creatures trying to comprehend an infinitely pure and perfect God. But let's make sure that we always come back to consider the full expression of God's character. And holiness, as described here in this psalm, helps us to consider the entirety of God. For it is this infinitely perfect and pure aspect of holiness that actually supports all of the attributes of God that we see described in Scripture. It is the holiness of God, the moral perfection of God, the divine apartness of God that undergirds every aspect of who God is. And so it would be appropriate for us not to simply talk about the justice of God, but to speak about the holy justice of God. Because it is a perfect justice that never violates the perfectly moral character of a holy God. It would be wise for us to consider not only the wisdom of God, but the holy wisdom of God. Because it is perfect wisdom that never ventures into the realm of imperfect foolishness or folly. We could go on like this with every attribute of God. His omnipotence is a holy omnipotence. His omniscience is a holy omniscience. We see in Scripture that holiness is at the foundation of who he is. And even in this psalm that we study today, we see the overarching theme of holiness being used as the foundation to support the character and nature of God. There are three distinct divisions in the psalm. Each stanza ends with this declaration of the holiness of God. And it gives perfect symmetry to the psalm, but it also serves us well to have three points. So if you're a note taker, we're going to look at the following ideas. God is holy in his reign. That's verses 1 through 3. God is holy in his justice. That's verses 4 and 5. And God is holy in his provision. That's verses 6 through 9. So look back with me at verses 1 through 3 where we see the psalmist describe a God who is holy in his reign. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. Psalm 99 is characterized as one of the enthronement psalms. What that means is it belongs to a collection of psalms that, that highlight the eternal sovereign reign of God over all things. And these psalms paint a picture of God enthroned in power and might and majesty. 
four of the enthronement psalms, including this one, contain the phrase, the Lord reigns. And these psalms focus on the divine kingship of God Almighty. These are psalms, so they were written to be sung and recited and repeated. And they're, in, and they're structured in such a way that they invite the singer or the hearer, or in this case, the reader, to consider the, the nature and character of God. But they also have a call for an appropriate creature response. For instance, in Psalm 93, it begins, as this one does, the Lord reigns. And the call is for the non-living creation to respond with all of its might and all of its power and every bit of forceful noise that it can muster to try to drown out the glory of the Lord. But to no avail, the psalmist confesses, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Similarly, in verse In the 10th verse of the 96th Psalm, we again see this phrase, the Lord reigns. But this time, the call is for all creation to join in making noise to the praise of his name. Again, in Psalm 97, we see the opening phrase, the Lord reigns. And and this time, the immediate call is for the earth to rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. That'd be a good psalm for Ty to preach. But when we come to Psalm 99, we see the same opening phrase, but I want you to look at the immediate call. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Why does the psalmist begin this way? Well, I think the psalmist issues this call to respond in this way because there is an appropriate and often involuntary response to the holiness of God. And when we begin to grasp the idea of the otherness of God, the apartness of God, the godness of God, it is appropriate to tremble before him. And this call follows those three simple words, that little phrase, the Lord reigns. But there is so much depth in that phrase. The psalmist is begging us to consider the absolute sovereignty of God Almighty. What is it that the Lord does not have intimate knowledge of or power to direct? The scriptures remind us that the Lord is That the Lord reigns over time. That the Lord reigns over creation. That the Lord reigns over the nations. That he reigns over rulers. The Lord reigns over the hearts of men. The Lord reigns over every circumstance of life. The Lord reigns over life itself. And when the human heart begins to comprehend the majesty and the power and the absolute sovereignty of a holy God, that heart begins to understand the distance between creature and the uncreated one. 
And there is a godly fear that wells up inside of the one who catches a glimpse of the glory of God because we have no category of comprehension to place God into. We have no bucket of understanding that we can mentally drop him into. We have no space to influence his judgments or manipulate his plans or evade his requirements or escape his presence. We are simply left with the confession of Moses, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Will you not tremble before a holy God who reigns over all? All creation trembles. Look at the end of verse 1. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The cherubim, like the seraphim, are angelic beings that were created by God for the specific purpose of being able to endure the untamed glory of God Almighty. They exist at all times in the presence of God, and so he equipped them with wings to cover their most vulnerable parts so as not to be consumed by the intensity of a holy God. These are not little chubby flying toddlers created in the mind of an artist. These are frightful characters in their own right with beating wings that make terrible noise like the the very voice of the Lord. And with another set of wings, they're always reaching out to shadow the mercy seat. And whether the psalmist had in mind a description of the heavenly sanctuary of God or the historic earthly depiction of it, it doesn't matter. Both are applicable here. For the Lord is high and lifted up. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Just as there are no autonomous atoms or maverick molecules or rogue rivers, there are no independent individuals. God reigns over all. His sovereignty is complete and absolute. He is exalted over all the peoples. So praise his great and awesome name. Holy is he. I wonder if this psalm with its triple repetition declaring the holiness of God reminds you of Isaiah's account of the enthroned God who reigns over all. You'll remember it reads this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Inanimate objects responding to the glory of God. 
What happened to the one who was living? Isaiah said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am ruined. I am undone. There is a proper response when confronted with the reality of a holy God who reigns over everything. Job trembled. Confronted with the reality of God who reigned over every aspect of his life down to the security of his own children. He came to a place where he thought it best just to put his hand over his mouth. Habakkuk trembled. He heard the word of the Lord and his lips quivered. And rottenness began to fill his bones and his legs began to give way under his own weight. Isaiah trembled. He trembled to the point that he literally began to come apart at the seams. Molecularly, physiologically, it was just too much for him. The vision of God enthroned above the cherubim, being praised by the seraphim, reciting an angelic chorus, the attribute of God that upholds and supports who he is. God is holy, holy, holy. And I don't think it's mere coincidence that of all of the attributes of God, holiness is the only one described in the superlative triple repetition format that we see here in Psalm 99 and in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4. God alone is different than. God alone is apart from. God alone is other than. He is holy. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise his great and awesome name. First you tremble, then you praise. But please note, the fear and the reverence, even in the command to praise the Lord. Praise his great and awesome name. Translators spend a lot of time deciding on which words are most appropriate, most descriptive. But sometimes the common vernacular of the day undermines their best efforts. And in this particular case, our culture has taken the accurate and descriptive word awesome and reduced it to a slang expression synonymous with cool. And I'm as guilty as anyone. You tell me about the highlight of your week, and there's a good chance that I will respond with, that's awesome. But the Hebrew word here, yare, that is translated for us as awesome, actually means to be made to fear, to causatively be frightened, To morally revere and stand in awe of that which terrifies. It is a word that perfectly sums up the proper response to a holy God who is like no other. In fact, the King James translates this verse, Let them praise thy great and terrible name. 
This may not be the most popular teaching that you hear nowadays, but we would do well if we would resist the temptation to worship a tamed, domesticated God of our own design. We would do well to tremble before a God who is enthroned above the cherubim. We would be wise to reverently fear and to offer awestruck praise to a God who is holy and his majesty will not be watered down. God is holy in his reign. And he is holy in his justice. Look back at verse 4 and 5 if you would. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You'll notice that the psalmist carries the theme of the first stanza right into the second. With the power and strength of God enthroned on high. Sovereign king of everything, and in his might, he loves justice. Don't miss this important part of this verse. This is important for all creation because it highlights the uniqueness, the otherness of God's justice. Oh, beloved, can you imagine an all-powerful God? An absolutely sovereign God. A God who does whatever he pleases. Can you imagine that God as one who executes a type of justice that we could comprehend or relate to? A justice that is self-serving. A justice that is fickle. A justice that shifts in every response to every loud voice and strong opinion. A justice that respects one and ignores another. Oh, praise God that his justice is not a justice like ours. He's not limited by an omission of some of the facts, for he knows all things. His justice is not polluted with the effects of a greedy heart or evil motive, for he is light, and in him there is no darkness. His justice is not manipulated by deceit or lying tongue, for he is the only true God. Praise God that his justice is rooted in his goodness. His justice erupts from his moral perfection. His justice is an overflow of his holy nature. But don't be confused. God is ruthless in the execution of his justice. But his justice is good and right and perfect. And he loves justice. So we can exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Do you see what the psalmist is doing here? With every line of the psalm, he's reminding us of the holiness, the otherness of God. He is holy in his reign over all things. He is holy in the way that he executes perfect justice. There is this ever-present refrain that God is so different, so removed, so perfect, 
and so distant from what we know ourselves and others to be. Do you love justice? Don't be quick to answer that. It deserves some serious thought and consideration. Do you love justice? Or do you love rules, legislation, and decisions that benefit you personally? I know a lot of you think it's football season. It's not. It's baseball season. And in the American League Championship Series the other night, Adolis Garcia for the Texas Rangers hit a towering moonshot off of future Hall of Fame pitcher Justin Verlander, who was pitching for the Houston Astros. And when the ball left the bat, Adolis Garcia just stood at home plate and watched it go until it landed somewhere in the left field stands. And when he finally started to make his way around the bases, he walked halfway up the first baseline, celebrating with his teammates in the dugout long before he ever crossed home plate. Well, for those of you who are old school fans of baseball, you know what happened next. The next time he came up to the plate, Brian Abreu, who had replaced Justin Verlander as the pitcher, promptly drilled him in the elbow with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Chaos ensued, benches cleared, the bullpens emptied, and the umpires were left to try to untangle the mess and determine the intent of the pitcher. Was it intentional? Was it a mistake? Was it deserved? Did this cross the line? Do we execute justice and eject players, or do we sweep this under home plate and hope that this is the end of the skirmish? Well, if you were a Houston fan, you wanted Garcia ejected for going after the catcher right after he was hit by that pitch. If you're a Texas fan, you wanted Abreu ejected for taking matters into his own hands and throwing at a batter. If you were the fan of any other team, you were holding on to the sins of the past from the Houston franchise, and you were wishing nothing but ill will on them. So, thank you, baseball fan. But one thing is certain. Regardless of, of who you are in that scenario... In this case, and in just about any other case where justice seems a little bit unclear, we often support the decision that benefits us the most. Do we love justice or do we just love self? God loves justice. And as Pastor Josh so clearly pointed out last week, the rightness of God. The pure righteousness of God is what determines his holy justice. And the more that we come to see who God is, the more clearly we see ourselves for what we really are. And I think there is this tendency for us to want to believe that, that God is great. But if we're honest with ourselves, we like to put God on the top step of an Olympic podium. He, he can have the gold. As long as I can have the silver or at least the bronze. 
Calvin said it this way, and I quote, So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is, and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which, as a standard, we are bound to be conformed. What formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us the name of wisdom will disgust us by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far are those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. You see, we have a tendency to imagine that we are not so far away from God in terms of intellect, goodness, creativity, or the ability to govern and rule. But when we come face to face with the reality of a God who is holy, a God who is perfect in every way, it leaves us wrestling with the fact that our most egregious sin is thinking that we could ever consider equality with God something to be grasped. When we begin to understand the distance the apartness, the otherness between ourselves and a holy God, it leads to the kind of praise that the psalmist describes. Exalt the Lord. Magnify him. Honor him. Glorify him. Ascribe majesty to him. Elevate him. And worship where? At his footstool, obey him, surrender to him, submit to him, humble yourself before him. Do you see the distance? As you exalt the Lord, you elevate him. And as you worship at his footstool, you lower yourself. It is the authentic spontaneous and mandatory response of a heart that clearly sees themselves in the light of a supremely sovereign, perfectly just God. Holy is he. Well, all of this must raise the question in our hearts today, if God is so transcendent, if he is so other than if he is so distant from us in moral purity, then what place do we have in his presence? How can we ever draw near to such a holy God? The psalmist explains this mystery for us in the final stanza of Psalm 99. Look with me again at verses 6 through 9, where we see a God who is holy in his provision of grace. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, 
Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Here, the psalmist identifies three servants of the Lord who performed the function of a priest. That is, they would stand before God on behalf of the people. These were men who would occupy that space of that great divide between holy God and sinful man. And they would offer an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And those who first read and then sang this psalm, they would be reminded of the blood. All of the blood of bulls and goats and doves that was shed as a substitute for their own blood. So they could at least temporarily draw near to a holy God. This was God's merciful and gracious provision. These were men who called upon the name of the Lord. They kept his testimonies. They valued his statutes. They were imperfect and flawed themselves, but they were faithful to call out to the Lord on behalf of sinful man. Notice God's response to those who called upon his name. He answered them. He didn't disregard them. He didn't ignore them. He responded. And look back at the text. God did not respond casually and minimize sin. He didn't say, oh, Moses, you're you're being too hard on yourself and the people. After all, nobody's perfect. He didn't do that. Nor did he respond with a reactionary and capricious wrath to the soul that cries out to him. There is this beautiful arrangement of God's holy sovereignty, God's holy justice, and God's holy grace that results in a holy provision for the confessing sinner. And somehow, a holy God says to sinful man, your iniquity has been taken away and your sins forgiven. And if you're like me, you've got to be asking yourself the question, how can this be? How do we reconcile the statement that the psalmist makes? How can God be a forgiving God and an avenger of wrongdoing at the same time? How can he be merciful and just? The psalmist has already declared that God is mighty in his rule and reign and that he is the enthroned God of the universe, that he does what he pleases and that he sets the rules And like it or not, God established in the garden that the just penalty for rebellion against a holy God is death. And we know that holy justice demands that sin not be overlooked. And the psalmist has told us that God is just much more than that. He loves justice. So how can a holy God... How can an infinitely just God who loves justice 
How can he forgive sin and at the same time execute justice? It can't happen. Those two things can't be reconciled. Unless the provision itself is holy. We know that the three servants mentioned in this psalm, they don't make an exhaustive historical list of the priests of God. In fact, these priests and everyone after them would point to another priest. A priest who the psalmist will speak of in Psalm 110. A priest who would sit at the right hand of God. A priest who is also a king in the order of Melchizedek. A king, mighty in power and highly exalted, that we should tremble before him. But also a priest who can sympathize with us in every way because he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. A priest who the writer of Hebrews says is greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than Samuel. A perfect priest who, will, who not only kept the testimonies and statutes of God perfectly, but one who would be faithful over God's house as a son. A priest who would not offer himself as a one-time sacrifice, but a perfect sacrifice. A holy sacrifice that pays the price that holy justice demands and forever closes the gap between holy God and sinful man. The original audience would look forward in faith to Jesus, the Son of God, who would step into humanity the kingly priest who would not only rule and reign and be enthroned on high, but also intercede and sit at the right hand of the Father. I think it's worth noting that after Isaiah encountered God enthroned above the cherubim, being serenaded by the seraphim, after he had his encounter with God, he would go on to be a mouthpiece for God to the people. And one of the phrases that he would often use to describe God is the Holy One. 27 times in the book of Isaiah, he repeats the phrase as he urges the people to behold, to obey, to revere, to fear, to listen to, to submit to to honor, to remember the Holy One. Fast forward to the New Testament. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, he records the, the early adventures of a young rabbi who has just begun his teaching ministry by proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This traveling teacher is even successful at procuring a handful of cruddy fishermen who leave their nets to follow him. And as Mark moves quickly from one event to another, we find Jesus in his first confrontational encounter. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read from Mark 1. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. This is a demon-possessed man. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Peter was present during this encounter. And I think he probably learned his sound Christology from the confession of the demon. Do you see the absolute sovereignty on display? Another occasion in Mark chapter 4, we read this. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, with, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. The New American Standard translates it this way. They became very much afraid. Don't miss this. The disciples were already plenty afraid. The wind and the storms and the seas were plenty to stir up the fear of death in their hearts. But when confronted with the otherness of Jesus, when confronted with one that they had no category for, one who quieted the fury of the storm by his very word, the disciples didn't know what to do with this other than to say, what manner of man is this? And to become very much afraid of him. Have you ever trembled before the Holy One of God? We're not finished. Stay with me. Are you with me? The Gospel of John in chapter 6 We see the account of Jesus continuing his teaching ministry, but the lessons are getting tough now. People are struggling with it. They're not accepting it. Many are rejecting the teachings of Jesus, and they're turning away, and they're now leaving in droves. And starting at verse 67, we see Jesus turn to the 12 and ask them this, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter heard the confession of the demon and saw the demon submit when Jesus said, be silent. Peter saw the obedience of the wind and the waves when the Lord commanded, be still. Still later, Peter would see the first hand He would see a firsthand reaction of the soldiers and chief priests and Pharisees when they came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus spoke, I am he. And the whole group just lost the ability to stand 
and they collapsed to the ground under their own weight. Peter saw the absolute authority and sovereignty of the word of God made flesh. And he came to know that God's provision was a holy provision. But it was still yet on one other occasion when Peter came to understand something of the distance between himself and a holy God. You'll remember that the Gospel of Luke records for us the story of Jesus being pressed by the crowds and retreating to the edge of Lake Gennesaret. And Jesus climbs into Peter's fishing boat and had him put off from the shore a bit so that he could teach the crowd from a safe distance. And when he had finished teaching, he then instructed Simon Peter to put out a little further and to let down his nets for a catch. Never being one to hold his tongue, Peter responded to Jesus with his credentials as a professional fisherman. He reminded him that they had just fished all night without a single fish. That they had just finished the process of picking all of the sticks out of the net before Jesus had arrived. He didn't want to put out his washed nets again just to have to clean them again. But give Peter some credit. He may have yet been proud, but at least he was obedient. You pick up the story in verse 5, chapter 5, and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you see the echo of Isaiah? Confronted with the reality of the Holy One of God right in front of him, Simon Peter, molecularly, physiologically, he just starts to unravel at the seams. He is becoming undone. And in the presence of Jesus, he can no longer stand under his own weight. And don't miss what he said. In recognition of the otherness of Christ, Peter pleads with the Lord, just get away from me. But as Psalm 99 reminds us today, when we come to the point of honest confession, when we come to a place of agreement with God, about his otherness and our sinfulness. When we are made to see the difference and the distance between the moral perfection of a holy God and the depraved fallen nature of our own hearts, and we cry out as one who now loves justice more than self, depart from me, for I am a sinner And it would be a travesty of justice for you to even be mindful of me. 
when we plead with God to execute holy justice, praise God, he does not give us what we beg for in that moment. He answers, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Christ crucified, his blood poured out at the cross for sinners like you and me. It is the only sacrifice that satisfies the demands of justice and then demands the forgiveness of sin. It's what makes 1 John 1.9 true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the response that Psalm 99 calls for. First you tremble, then you praise. When Jesus was fulfilling his role as the kingly priest who would offer himself as the only sacrifice that could satisfy justice and appease the wrath of a holy God, he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Beloved, I plead with you today. Behold your God. Behold your God who is holy in his reign. Behold your God who is holy in his justice. Behold your God who is holy in his provision of grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the depth of your word which teaches us and illumines our heart and reveals to us the otherness of who you are. Father, we praise you that you are not like us. We praise you that you are a God of whom there is, like, there is, there is no one like you. Father, we ask that you would cement the words, the teaching into our heart, that we would never exalt ourselves, that we would always exalt you, and that we would find the greatest joy in worshiping at your footstool. Help us to be that type of people, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.